today I'm not going to use slides, um, but if you do have a Bible, and I know you do because there's one in the pew in front of you, uh, I would encourage you to turn uh, it to Genesis 1, and then if you want to find Deuteronomy chapter uh, 7 and 8, that would help too. So in the beginning, we see a God who creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them out of nothing. This is called creation ex nihilo. This is, the, uh, this is the doctrine which describes our faith. It describes a God who doesn't take a hold of material things, but he actually begins to call them into existence and then begins to use them in glorifying ways. Our God progressively partitions his glory and extends it and glorifies it. He creates light and then separates it from darkness. He creates uh, the waters above from the waters beneath. He divides those two. He divides dry land from the sea. He calls forth vegetation to come up from the earth. He calls forth the sun and the moon, and he places them in the heavens to rule over light and darkness. And so after God creates everything out of nothing, he then begins to partition. He says, this is how far the dry land will go, and this is how far the sea will come forth. And then he creates a boundary between them, and he partitions those things into useful designations, calling things land and sea, where before it was just merely the world. And so he calls forth the animals on the earth, and then we see something totally and absolutely unique. Over and over again in Genesis 1, we see God saying things like, let there be, let the waters teem, or the waters swarm, let the earth bring forth, Over and over again, God gives statements saying that things in his creation should respond to his voice, and then we see something absolutely and totally unique. With each act, God speaks, let there be, let there exist, but now he's going to say something else. For this final task, God is intimately involved. In fact, this is the very first poem or song in the entire Bible, and it's important to understand this construction, it is not something that is unintentional or coincidental. I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 28, but notice in your Bibles, Genesis 20, uh, 1, 27 is, uh, it's indented from the other two verses. It says in Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man is put over creeps. This is wonderful. That is the introductory clause. God says, let us make. Notice how different that is compared to every other statement that God makes in Genesis 1. He says, let there be, let there exist, let the earth bring forth, and now he says, let us make. Verse 27, the first poema, or the first song in the scriptures, so God created man in his own image, And then here's really the center verse of this structure. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now what's interesting to see is this is actually what's called a chiasm in the scriptures. A chiasm, if you may remember, is like a hamburger. Right? On a hamburger, you have a bun, you have the meat, and then you have another bun. And the point of a chiasm, literally speaking, is to emphasize the central point as it relates to the surrounding ideas. 
Does this make a little sense to you that in the center is the Imago Dei? This is the doctrine which we understand to be God investing his image into mankind, into men, and he invests it, and it is surrounded by two verses, 26 and 28, that describe God's granting of authority to Adam in the dominion mandate. He says in verse 26, let them have dominion, and then he says in verse 27, in the image of God he created them, and then verse 28, and God said, be fruitful, multiply. The triune God holds counsel in verse 27, and we see into this through Moses' inspiration. Moses writes, of course, the Pentateuch, and he writes faithfully. It says that God purposed to invest his own image and authority in Adam. You see, God takes this world, he makes it, he creates it, he partitions it, glorifies it, and then creates a context in which Adam lives. We're not going to go into into Genesis 2 today. However, we see in Genesis 2, just briefly... We see a notion of God creating a garden and then installing Adam in that garden. You see, Adam did not make the Garden of Eden. He arrives in the Garden of Eden. It's a gracious context in which God gives him a task to keep the garden and to protect it, to extend its bounds, to glorify it. Those of you who've ever planted anything or tended a garden of your own or worked a field, you know that without tending a garden, it quickly goes to disaster. If you'd like some evidence of that, come over to my house. This chiasm shows an intimate connection between Adam's calling to take dominion and his nature being invested with the Imago Dei. God creates in Genesis a world that must be cultivated. He does not make a world that is able to exist and to thrive apart from man's involvement with that world. This is exactly contrary to what the spirit of the age has to to say about nature. God not only makes a world which can be cultivated, he makes a world which must be cultivated, and the things which are created can be utilized in a more glorifying way. Isn't this interesting about the world that you can take hold of material resources, combine them in a different way, and make something more beautiful? I often am making bread at my house, and one of the things that was amazing to me at the first is that if I take water, bread, a little bit of yeast, which is actually present in the air, or a special yeast that you buy at a store or cultivate, and you combine them in such a way as to make a dough, that that dough will begin to capture air, and that yeast will begin to do work for you in leavening the bread, and you'll make an amazing thing called bread. And that will, after being baked, be extremely nutritious. You'll be able to live for many days just on bread alone, Not forever, but if you tried that same thing with water and flour, you would die in three or four days. Like, flour being eaten by itself is actually very caustic to your system. You can't just eat flour. I actually, this is a side point off my illustration. One time I thought I was putting protein powder in my oatmeal, and it turned out I was actually putting wheat flour in my oatmeal. It was horrible. Utilizing the things which are created, we can combine them in certain ways to make something more glorious. A little bit of flour, sugar, water, milk, and some eggs can create an amazing cake. But if you just ate all of those things without combining them, it would not be as glorious. Although the eggs might be nice, but, but they, they wouldn't go well with, with everything else. Eating raw sugar is terrifying. So God makes a world in which it's possible 
to create things through the things which are created. And in saying this, we're not saying that Adam or man is able to create ex nihilo, but he is able to create in the way God creates. You see, God creates ex nihilo on days one and four, but he doesn't really do that on the rest of the days. He calls them forth, he causes them to be, but he uh, directly says things like, let the earth swarm or let the seas teem. This is important to understand. He gives Adam a five-fold task, and it's interesting that five very quickly begins to describe the nature of man and man's task. He says to Adam to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and have dominion over the creatures. I think it's interesting to note that he enumerates these as five things. Some of them seem to us to be uh, exactly the same or just different phrases for the same thing, but I think each one of them is important to be considered. Nevertheless, through these actions, Adam will glorify God and transform creation into something greater, something more glorious. God makes a world in which Adam is supposed to live and transform that world for his glory. This process of utilizing raw materials in a glorifying way is to continue throughout history. It's not just Adam's task to tend and keep the garden. It's then the children's task to tend and keep the garden. Now, we do know that Adam diminishes that task through his sin, and he's expelled from the garden. But it's interesting to note that God never takes away the dominion mandate from Adam. Uh, Theologians in the Middle Ages developed a contrary doctrine uh, that actually posited that Satan took over the world at the time of Adam. And I, I don't think that's exactly clear from the scriptures. God actually says to Adam, you're still going to have to till the ground, but now thorns are going to come up. Your task will be harder. It's not that your task is removed removed. So because the Christian walks before God, he is responsible to God as to how he builds, invests, plants, and stewards. Because this is all going somewhere. You and I do not live in a world that is disconnected from its origin or destiny. It is intimately connected, and that the one who connects it is God. Through time, God is working to bring the wealth of the nations to the feet of Christ, and you, are, you and I are involved in that task. Therefore, Christian men ought to see their vocation as a stewardship of God's world, investing in the future and building in the light of eternity. This is contrary to modern notions of doom and gloom that say the world is going to end within our generation. It's not, it doesn't make any sense to invest or build. Now, that may sound insane to you, and I would agree with you if you, if you thought that, but I know people who because of the theology that they heard, the eschatology that they heard, they told me, sometimes with tears, I don't have photos of my children. Our kids didn't go to high school or college because the world was going to end. Jesus was going to come back. You see, this is an abdication of the dominion mandate. This is contrary to God at his word directly. So, not only are you to build in light in, in the light of eternity, but your skills, talents, and resources all must be used in a way that loves God and loves neighbor. You see, the garden was as much a place for Adam to live as it was for his wife to live. He was not just to tend and keep the garden for God's sake. He was also ten, uh, called to tend and keep the garden because that's where he lived. Sinful man, humanistic man, atheistic man is contrary to this purpose. Because he is untethered from his ultimate origin, he posits a God that does not exist, 
he is constantly at war within himself concerning his purpose. Remember, we talked about the fact that God imbued Adam with the Imago Dei. And what that means is that not only does Adam reflect something about the nature of God, but Adam himself cannot escape the fact that he is man. He cannot escape the fact that he will inexplicably be creatorial. If you take any person who's ever lived on this earth, whether they're creative in their job or not, they have done something that is creative. They've drawn a picture. They've constructed a poem. They've drawn lines in the sand. Children from a very young age begin to exhibit the use of creation in a more glorifying way. But because atheistic man is conflicted within himself, he is constantly at war with himself concerning his purpose. Intrinsically, he, he knows that he ought to build for the future, yet his personal future is death. When we talk about eschatology, it's important to dif- distinguish between the ultimate eschatology, that is what's happening to the world, and our personal eschatology, what's happening to me. His personal future is death, and his ultimate future is the eventual heat death of the universe. Think about this for a second. The atheist who posits no God has no eschaton. There is no grand catastrophe that's coming at the end of the age save for an asteroid hitting the earth with great fury and fire, and and then everything's lost for the atheist. There is no ultimate purpose, and there is no ultimate meaning because it dies with him, and if it doesn't die with him, it dies at the end of time. The atheist celebrates the untouched wilderness as the pinnacle of beauty, and yet he lives in a house made of lumber, plaster, brick, and shingles. If you've ever read Walden Pond, you may know what I'm talking about. Henry David Thoreau was a number, uh, a part of a group of philosophers uh, called the American Continental Philosophers, and he, he wrote a very uh, influencing book on our culture called Walden Pond, and um, It was his experiment to try to live within nature as close as he could to escape the industry, to escape. I I remember at the beginning of the book, he he says he's at war with the constant timekeeping of the local train station because it symbolized everything that was unwild about human society. And he attempted to live at Walden Pond. He only did it for a number of years. And what's interesting is, as you read the book, every few days he goes to the general store in town and then comes back with materials. This is exactly the same thought process behind some of the you know, Greenpeace, Worship Mother Gaia kind of notions today, which are more pervasive than we can even imagine. Though sinful man can have a measure of personal meaning, he cannot, without acknowledging his maker, have any true or lasting fulfillment. And that is why Christianity is actually so appealing, especially for your... your uh, friends, co-workers, etc., because they cannot be ultimately fulfilling their purpose unless they understand that part of their purpose is living and walking before God. So, understanding that this world was made by God for man to take dominion over it, to combine it in such a way as to produce a more glorifying result, let's look at some of the New Testament's commandments to work. So today, the Christian faith has been reduced mostly to platitudes about salvation and the eternal state. This is what I see going on, especially when I look at some of the national ministries and what they're talking about in their blogs and articles. Mostly, they, if they have any cultural engagement, it's usually on things like the issue of marriage for singles and whether or not Christians can be involved in the military, and occasionally, how should Christians vote? They often do not examine the whole nature of the world. 
But Christ gave authority to the disciples to teach the nations everything, to, to obey everything which he commanded them. And it's interesting to note that Christ is presented as the author of the word. So Christ's teaching, he gives Christian pastors and teachers a specific task. In Ephesians 4, we see that when Christ ascended, he gave, gift, he gave gifts to men, and those gifts are for the issue of the church. Christian pastors and teachers ought to bring biblical witness to bear in every aspect of, of life. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, Paul says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him eat. For we hear that some of you, uh, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus. Look at this. He's commanding them. That's a foreign idea to us, that Paul has the authority to command. And encouraging in the Lord to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Christians should be diligently engaged in a vocation, not merely surviving an occupation. And the difference is very important. A vocation is from the Latin, as my wife will tell you, from voca or vaca, waka, thank you, that, that it's, he's not a, um, a Jim Henson character. Um, waka, waka, anybody? No, you're too, you're too young. That's okay. Uh, vocation means from waka to call, or a calling, or a, a summoning. And so Christians are involved in a vocation. They're involved in a calling to walk before their God, not merely an occupation. You are not supposed to be a cog in a machine, and, no, and neither should you start businesses in which you make people cogs in machines. You are not merely surviving an occupation. Anything that should be done as a robot eventually will be done as a robot, and you'll be freed up to do other things. Thank God. Jobs are not necessary evils which we must survive in order to do the spiritual things well. You do not work your job in order that you can tithe and do the real important stuff in church meetings. Christianity involves the church building and what goes on in the church building as, what, as much as what goes on in the warehouse or factory. Jobs are not necessary evils. Likewise, Christians should be self-sufficient. You're not supposed to just work a job and then work a job no matter what it does and then beg, borrow, or steal from your brothers or sisters. 1 Thessalonians 4, the prior letter that Paul wrote to the same people, he, he says that they encourage them to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as he instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Interesting to, to examine that he commands them to not be dependent on anyone. And he doesn't say don't just be dependent on those outside the church, but as you're able to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. Work for the Christian, therefore, is not only an issue of obedience, but also it's a noble thing. We've just heard two commands, not to be idle, not to be lazy, not to be slothful, but to, to actually be filled with a purpose. And that purpose should not only transform how you view obedience, but it also should transform how you view partnering with God through your life. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. 
Isn't that interesting to see that Paul tells the Colossians that they're not working for their boss, ultimately. They are working for their boss, and in no way should they be disrespectful to their boss or, their, or to their master, but ultimately, they're working for Christ. And understanding the difference between the ultimate and the penultimate, or the secondary, uh, we see the vital aspect of Christianity. What you or I do every day is worship. We either are worshiping God faithfully or we are not worshiping God faithfully. Worship is not just limited to singing songs, reading Bible verses, and hearing sermons. Those are vitally connected to how you grow as a Christian. Those are mightily important to the faith and health and unity of the church universal as well as the local church that you attend and are part of. But worship is done every day. Martin Luther, and I'm going to paraphrase here, is quoted as saying that the Christian cobbler, Christian shoemaker, is not deemed a Christian by affixing little crosses on his belt buckles or the sides of the shoe, but rather in doing his work with excellence. You see, the point is that most of us have so reduced Christianity to symbols and trite things that we think for a Christian music song or a Christian artwork, it needs to depict something that is inherently religious in nature or has some of the symbols of Christianity on it. Like, instead of designing a really awesome mountain bike, we design a really mediocre mountain bike and then we put a cross on, you know, the tie bar. That, that is what we often do in our Christianized sub-ghettos, if you will. And by sub-ghettos, I mean we make these cultural enclaves in which we tolerate in, uh, uh, inferior art or inferior product or inferior service, and we slap the label Christian on it, and we market it to the church. And then in doing that, we think we've fulfilled a Christian vocation. But Christians can be involved in making bricks just as much as they can be involved in making songs. Christian bricks should be the, bre the best bricks. Christian stones should be cut in the best way. Christian lawyers should know the law with clarity, with precision, be able to argue with not only righteousness, but also conviction about their positions. You see, Christian vocation is more than just putting crosses on your website, business card, or Yellow Pages ad. Christian vocation is doing everything to the glory of Christ. And understanding also that we serve a God whose eyes are everywhere. And isn't that wonderful and encouraging? And also slightly terrifying. You, see, you worship a God who sees what you do in church as much as what you do in the workplace or in the schoolhouse. It's absolutely the case that you have to do everything to the glory of Christ. So, having considered the biblical teaching on what is the nature of work... Uh, what is going to happen if we adopt this methodology of working? What will happen if you take on the biblical counsel to work as unto the Lord, not as unto man alone, but to actually live in such a way as to be in accordance with the biblical teaching, to not be consumed with vocations that destroy you or, or work you to death, and not to be consumed with things that are, have no purpose, and not to be consumed with idleness, but to be busy, to be busy at work, working with your hands, what will happen to you? I think it's clear from the New Testament and the Old Testament alike that the natural fruit of obedience and sanctification is blessing. God rewards those who seek him. That is not a prosperity gospel message. God rewards those who faithfully seek him and diligently seek him and follow his word. This blessing, although not always, 
is often both spiritually and financially applied. That blessing does not just concern spiritual things. Christianity is not just about dying and going to heaven. So now, after obeying God, after obeying God about vocation, now the Christian will be tested with another realm of obedience. This is the principle of multiplication. If, you, if you've never considered this, this is a, a, a grand philosophical idea that pervades everything in God's creation. That whatever you do multiplies. This is the way that God invested his creation with, with a pattern. This is the pattern at, at which that every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. And that fruit contains within it the seed. And the seed is invested and it multiplies. This happens with you. If you continue to eat, guess what you're doing in the future? You're setting yourself up to eat more. If you continue to live, you have to continue to breathe. And so breathing begets breathing. This is the way that time partners with creation. You, by obeying God, will now be tested in another dimension. Your obedience in one area begets the necessity of obedience in another area. It is not as if you can obey God for a time, settle at that level of obedience, and then say, I've come, I've arrived, I can now take a break. I can now be slack with something. I can now be lazy, or I can indulge myself here. I can indulge myself there. Christians who obey God's command to be fruitful and multiply have overcome sloth, and they have overcome idleness, but now they must overcome three new tasks, or three new sins, thanklessness, greed, and idolatry. These are important to consider because they are pervasive and they are subtle. That is, they apply to every man, no matter how much money you have, you can be consumed with greed, because greed is the desire for more, not contentment with what you have, or discontentment with what you have. It's the desire for more. And idolatry, turning towards trusting in riches or, or worshiping them, or allowing them to capture some of your heart. Now, you or I may not sit at a pile of money and bow before it, but that is not what the Christian teaching on idolatry is. Idolatry is a heart disposition towards a thing, a created thing, not towards God, that is, that is inherently worshipful, that you adore it, that you place trust in it, that you love it. See, you see, your affections are actually much more indicative of your idols than you may suppose. According to the warning that's given through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God looks at the heart of his people to judge their motivations just as much as their behavior. You see, Christianity is not exclusively internal, nor is it exclusively external. There's always two ditches on the road. And going to exclusively internal, we make Christianity a, a hyper-spiritualized nation, uh, notion. And going towards merely external, then we begin to be deceived that only loving our neighbor is important. Doctrinal purity doesn't matter at all. And we can make compromises with whoever we want. As long as we're partnering with other people to love other people, then it's a good thing. Christianity has two sides to the, uh, there are always two sides to the, the ditches. Uh, so God looks at the heart of his people to, mo to judge their motivations as much as their behavior. And he says in Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 19, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. This is probably the most important verse for me in all of Deuteronomy. The reason why I say that is because it is this key verse which 
the, the Israelites do not obey. This is why they go into exile. This is why they begin to be idolaters. Verse 18, it says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You see, we read that and we think, hurrah, I've made it. I'm now a Christian and this applies to me. God's going to make me wealthy. <laughs> this is a warning. You see, if you begin down the path of Christian obedience, you will be blessed, most likely. If normal things happen, the way that God has designed things to work is the principle investing in the future, you reap and you are showered with blessings. And this verse is given as a warning to the subtle idolatry of the heart. Not only do we have to read it as a warning, we have to remember it as a warning. Now, there's always blessing and curse in the law of God. They, they attend together. There are curses if you disobey. There are sanctions if you disobey. There are blessings and rewards and commendations if you, if you obey. So, not only is this a verse that it contains a warning... It also has an element, although the, the nature is a warning, it has an element of displaying the covenant faithfulness of God. Continuing in verse 18, uh, starting over in verse 18, you shall remember the Lord, of your, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to, you, uh, swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Verse 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Doesn't that sound exactly like what Adam heard in the garden? Adam heard in the garden that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely perish. You see, the people of Israel were being brought into a land that was like the garden that God had set up and had been zealous to protect this land. He wanted to purge it from the bad weeds, namely the people who lived in the land, the Canaanites who were doing horrible things, including the murder of their children at the hands of this God named Moloch, which if you haven't ever understood the nature of abortion, it's a modern day Canaanism. Uh, Moloch was this god that, that what they would do, he, he would often be made out of either iron or bronze, and he would, he would be this god who holds out his hands, and they would take fire, and uh, they'd take the coals of the fire, bits of wood that had br been broken down after being burned for a long period of time, they would take the shovel, put it into the coals, and, hoop, and scoop the coals up into the hands of Moloch, and his hands would then begin to conduct energy, thermal energy. This is the way that metal works. If you've ever touched yourself on an oven, you know metal gets hot quickly. That's what God made it to do. And so they would take these coals, put them in the hands of Moloch, and after the hands were sufficiently hot, glowing red, they would remove the coals, and then they would command one of the people in the town, or one of the people in the town would freely choose to offer up their children, and they would place a baby in the hands of Moloch, and they would wait for the baby to burn to death and to begin to smolder. And they, they said that in these rites of worshiping Moloch, that they would actually play music loud enough around the idol so that the people who were far away from the idol wouldn't hear and wouldn't see anything that's going on. 
because the screams were so loud that they had to drown them out. The, the nature of the horrific act was so present that anyone who was even close or aware of what was going on would see the inherent evil. This is what the people of Canaan were doing to their children, and they were rightly removed from the land. Nevertheless, the people of Israel, after a few generations, begin to do the same thing. And we wonder how it is that abortion stands in our culture today. It stands in our culture today because fundamentally we have become pursuers of pleasure. You see, abortion is intimately tied to, connected with, uh, joined at the hip, if you were, with this notion of because I'm a woman, this child will ruin my life, or because I'm a father, this child will ruin my financial future, and therefore we have to kill the child in order to save our future. This is nothing other than witchcraft, idolatry, and high-handed rebellion against God. Because it denies the nature of children, and it denies the nature of God's world. It is murder for the sake of personal pleasure and ease of future. Nevertheless, this is exactly the principle at work that the Israelites began to imbibe in. They began to become thankless, they began to be greedy and idolatrous, and they went to serve other gods. It's very interesting to me to connect these two ideas because we often think, what was the motivating force? Why would the people of Israel go and worship Baal and Ashtoreth? Well, it's quite clear from history that each one of those cults, for Baal or Ashtoreth or any of the other gods of the land of Canaan, each one of those cults had a significant aspect to it as a fertility cult. If you've done any history or any sort of reading about that time period, you may understand the nature of fertility cults is to ensure blessing on the crop that year or to ensure blessing on the harvest that year. And so they would attempt to appease these gods to ensure their material blessing. I think that's an important notion to understand, that idolatry can take you off very far from the worship of God. So because the principle of multiplication is at work in his people who actually obey, they have to warn themselves, guard themselves against this type of slipping into idolatry. As I said, obedience to God's commandments beget the need for further obedience. Just like a lie, you have to cover it up with more lies in order to not be discovered. So with obedience to God, it now positions you through circumstances to have to obey at a deeper and more fundamental level. This is what becoming an adult is all about. It's taking on more responsibility than you receive reward. Although you are allowed to and permitted to eat of, your, you know, eat of the fruit of your harvest, at the same time, you are given larger and larger scenarios in which you must obey. Because the Israelites have obeyed God at this time, in, in Deuteronomy, for the next few generations, most of them will generally obey for a few years. Because they obey God, they experience great blessing and in turn must use that blessing appropriately. During the time of David, they had so much silver that they didn't count it. I want you to think about that for a second. There are very few places I've ever been in my entire life. One of them is Mendelssohn's downtown. If you want to go see a warehouse where it wouldn't even be worth counting all this stuff, go down to Mendelssohn's or maybe a Walmart or a Sam's Club or a Costco. Without sophisticated systems, without record-keeping systems, it's impossible to even count all the things there. That's how much silver they had. They had so much silver that they, look, they make all the braggadocious rappers look like poor people. That's, that's how much silver David had. 
So, of course, this warning falls on deaf ears, or seemingly deaf ears, and we know the end of the story. They are bound to disobey. The opposite of this attitude, therefore, the opposite of disobeying, thanklessness, greed, and idolatry, is thanksgiving. That doesn't just happen once a year. That's probably the greatest problem with thanksgiving, is we've kind of subtly drifted into this notion of, we'll be thankful in November. Um, thanksgiving is important to do year-round. It is important to have charity in your heart year-round. And charity does not just mean love. It means sacrifice and giving. And then finally, the righteous use of wealth for the glory of God. Our, our culture in this church is one where young men and young women alike are taking these types of teachings, uh, to, they're heeding them, and they are obeying God's commands, and they are finding themselves being blessed with job after better job. Uh, you probably know more than a handful of people who that applies to. If I had to list them all, I could probably name 10 without thinking about it very hard. The point is not that we obey God in order to get a better job. It's that obeying God will naturally lead to these sort of circumstances, and we might as well have the right mindset going into it. The first step to cultivating a godly response to blessing is to primarily keep our hearts rightly related to God. Proverbs 11.28 says that fools trust in riches. We are also not to desire for wealth for wealth's sake. Desiring wealth for wealth's sake is terrifying. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul goes on to tell Timothy that those who desire to become wealthy pierce themselves with many pains. That's a terrifying image. It's like running into a spear. Is The desire to get wealthy for wealth's sake is a horrific thing, and it is absolutely terrifying. Nothing that I have said today in understanding how we ought to work as Christians should be implied that I am sanctifying the love of money or baptizing, if you will, uh, unrighteous mammon. Rather, we ought to use God's creation and God's ways for his glory. You, using our wealth for good works and generosity includes giving to charity, funding churches, schools, missions, and helping those who suffer calamity. It, it was the case less than 200 years ago that most insurance schemes, most calamity and rescue schemes, were actually started by and encouraged by this type of understanding of Christians. If you look at the churches and the, and the hospitals, even in this country to a large degree, they were started by Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics, and some you know, German Protestants. I, I can think of a number of our hospitals, even in this town, which started off as a Christian hospital. That's also where the universities came from, and it came because it attended to a worldview that went along with utilizing godly resources and, and using them in a way that is charity-producing. We, unfortunately, live at a time where the state is the god of the system, and so increasingly, as Christians have abdicated with a flight to eternity or a, a focus merely on heaven, we've abdicated control of much of what goes on in the natural realm, air quotes on natural, because nothing's natural, everything is God's. And understanding that, we, we rightly can interpret what's happening in our time, where more and more authority and power is being usurped by the state. That should not be the case. In a thoroughly Christianized society, none of that would be going on. The third aspect of rightly responding to blessing, the first one was keep our hearts rightly related to God, not 
allowing our inward heart motivation to trust in riches. The second thing is what we do with our money, giving it away. And then the third way that I think is somewhat, uh, maybe just as important as the other two, is to become one who is able to give a biblical exhortation or encouragement. Christians ought to become knowledgeable in godly wisdom as being taught by the scriptures. Oftentimes we're tempted to read our Bibles and we read our Bibles in such a way as, um, uh, well, we're never tempted to read our Bibles. We're, we're tempted to read our Bibles in such a way as to make them all about a personal quiet time or some sort of encouragement or exhortation that is personally benefiting. It is personally benefiting, but you should also be reading your Bible in order to understand, what does this say about my neighbor? What does this say about my Christian neighbor? You should be taught by the scriptures in order to share with your brothers and sisters about these things. There are Christians that you know who don't go to this church, and, and your goal may never to get them to attend this church, but your goal should be to encourage and bless them with a right motivation. Hey, you don't have to believe that Christ is going to come back in the next few years, therefore you're not going to work a job and you're just going to attend prayer meetings. You can deliver your neighbor from that sort of blinded thinking. You ought to be able to share with your brothers and sisters about these things in a way that is encouraging and is exhorting. Christ gave gifts to men, including teachers, for the building up of the church to maturity. In Ephesians 4, 9 through 14, it says that when Christ ascended, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There was something that happened at the ascension of Christ where he disposed gifts to people who would then inhabit and teach in his church, and those people would then go on to build up the church to maturity. Paul does not say that he gave those people to the church in order to equip the saints in order that the saints could just live pious and godly lives. It says maturity. And understanding that the biblical teaching talks about every aspect of life, maturity, therefore, is at least in some measure the establishing of God's counsel in every dimension of life. It is not just how you pray. It's not just the content of your songs. It's not just the type and manner and message of your sermons. It also is how you conduct business, how you do education, how you marry and how you die. It infects everything in life. So understanding that, here's my charge to you today as we end. I believe that you as a Christian should pursue what we call the spiritual disciplines. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that you should do that more than probably anything else. But at the same time, if you don't have anything else attending to your makeup of your Christian walk and witness, then I think you will be severely lacking. Most of the time, when we say Christian disciplines or spiritual disciplines, we talk about prayer, Bible study, worshiping God with songs, and every once in a while maybe memorizing some verses or something like that. But your Christian walk and witness also includes things like witnessing. It's there in the word. Christian witness includes testifying towards your brother, your sister, and your neighbor. Not just to those who are in the church, but those who are outside the church as well. Whenever you get into these sort of discussions, if you're taught in these things and if you've studied them, you can go to the heart level. You can say, well, ultimately the reason why I can work this job is because I believe I'm serving Christ. And if I didn't have that motivation, I couldn't survive this job. 
Those are the types of little arguments and uh, motivational strategies which you can have in sharing with your neighbor. You see, for, the, for your neighbor who does not know God, everything in the world is ultimately futile. Now, they are trying to hide from that fact. But whenever you get an open door into, into these things, whether it be started by their or your grumbling against a boss, or about the nature of this job, or whether this company will succeed, or whether we're doing meaningful work, every single one of those is an avenue to this notion that Christianity applies just as much to your job as it does to your spiritual, air quotes, spiritual activity. So here's my charge to you. You should cultivate a mindset where you see everything at your disposal. Everything that you have, your time, your intellect, your talents, your resources, your money, and that can continue on for as, as long as you want, everything are to, have been given to you to be tools for loving God and loving your neighbor and extending the kingdom. You should think about everything that you see, everything that you possess, give, buy, sell, whatever it is, all of those are tools by which you can love God and love your neighbor. And rightly using those tools brings more glory to God. And that's why he sent his son. So we, we ask you, Father, that you would encourage us in these things. We pray that you would give us an understanding of the world as you made it, that you would deliver us from thinking of, of the future as not worth investing in or futile or pointless. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from discouragement and that you would teach us that, uh, that we cannot reap in the future unless we sow today. God, we ask you that you would give us this notion, this mindset, that we would have the mind of Christ concerning why we're still on the earth, that we would utilize everything in our, in our hand for dominion, that we would not only uh, utilize it as such, but that we would, as we're using it, be able to speak about these things and to share the light of Christ in the gospel. We pray that your gospel would be well-funded and well-equipped and well-resourced in, in this city, especially in this church. We thank you for the glory of partnering with you. We ask that you would be glorified through a righteous wealth of the things you give us. Amen.